There we go. I am now recording. Yay. Go ahead and read the thing. <laughs> I'll go ahead and read the thing. In the walled city of Cairo, during the spring of 1324, residents had been anticipating a particular visit for months. Travelers and traders entering the city from the west told tales of a pilgrim caravan like no other, a vast traveling city slowly moving across the Sahara toward Mecca. 60,000 people, they said, each one, even the servants, dressed in imported silk and magnificent jewelry, carrying staffs of solid gold. Some of them rode in sedan chairs, curtained against the desert sun, others sat astride purebred horses. They spoke of thousands of horses, oxen, and donkeys, carrying all the accoutrements of the royal courts, tents, fine foods, furniture, amusements, and the most magnificent clothing imaginable. There was a queen who rode with an entourage of 500 silk-uniformed staff, and there was a king, more richly dressed than anyone they had ever seen, draped with gold and jewels as though determined to outshine the sun itself. This was Kankan Musa, Mansa of Mali, and he was making his hajj. He was expected to visit Cairo on his way to Mecca, and he was going to need supplies. The traders, merchants, and shopkeepers of Cairo prepared for this visit by marking up their goods and happily preparing to fleece at least a few of the rich foreigners. In the gold market, which was seeing record high prices for gold, the precious metals merchants anticipated an influx of cash and predicted a profitable rise in next year's sales to the European city-states across the Mediterranean who were desperate for gold. Dreaming of huge sales and lavish profits, the merchants could not have anticipated the disaster that was about to befall them upon the arrival of the magnificent caravan. For Mansa Musa did not visit the city as expected. He did indeed come to Cairo and settled his caravan near Giza. He made a state visit to the Mamluk Sultan of Egypt, Al-Nasir Muhammad, and as expected was formally welcomed by the court. There he charmed the scholars, clerics, and nobles alike with his devotion to Islam his tales of conquest and exploration in West Africa, and his ideas for the future of his kingdom, which he envisioned as a center of Islamic culture and scholarship. He made generous gifts to the sultan and convinced more than a few of the court to accompany him on the rest of his pilgrimage. All of these actions were expected and embraced by Cairo. But then he stayed, and he spent. From his caravans, purses, and saddlebags flowed a seemingly endless amount of gold, and it was distributed lavishly, on rich meals and entertaining, as well as supplies for his entourage, fresh animals, clothing, china, jewels, and the occasional souvenir, purchased by the dozen from the traders and merchants who swarmed the magnificently appointed camp. Weeks stretched into months, and still the Mansa remained, never questioning the absurd prices quoted for food and goods, donating huge amounts to the mosques around Cairo, and giving away gold nuggets by the handfuls to any beggars who asked for alms. The Kyrene gold market, at first ecstatic, soon realized what was happening. In a panic, they tried to soak up as much of the influx as they could, but as fast as they could purchase the foreign gold, Mansa Musa gave it away. Soon the economy of Cairo was drowning in gold. The historically solid price dropped and dropped until it destabilized completely, affecting not only the price of local goods, but those of Egypt's trading partners across the Mediterranean and in the Middle East. For the next 12 years, all these regional economies, but especially Cairo, would fight to recover from this destabilization, struggling against inflated currency in the oversaturated gold market. The economic depression caused by Mansa Musa's spending eventually triggered bankruptcies, unpredictable market fluctuations, and loan failures across the city's banking and money lending systems. For decades after his visit, 
the arrival of his Hajj caravan would be spoken of as a vision of wealth, and the people controlling Cairo's economic stability would tell apprentices and sons and colleagues the stories of the Emperor of Mali's visit as a cautionary tale that there was, indeed, such a thing as too much gold. Welcome to Relative Disaster, the show where my brother and I manage our existential dread by talking about terrible and interesting historical events, their context and implications, and our best tips for surviving them. I'm Ella, gold expert at the University of Relative Disaster. And I'm her brother Greg, chief gold economist of Relative Disasteria. So, we're talking about Mansa Musa today, who is like one of my favorite historical people, and we, we do not have enough time on this podcast to talk about just how interesting this guy actually was we could easily do a six-hour episode how would you feel about doing six-hour episodes right i feel like we have like two fans already and uh... yes we do (laughs) we want to thank both our fans but no i I, it's this is one of those people where where really there needs to be like a 12-part netflix documentary deep dive into this into the mali empire because we just don't teach it Really? We don't, which is really super sad. Uh, and I'm actually not sure how you found out about Mansa Musa. Do you remember when you first came across him? Yes. Okay, so <laughs> I do this thing when I can't sleep, which is often, where <laughs> I will go to Wikipedia and I will simply open up 10 different tabs and click random article in each of them. <gasps> and one of the things that I found was this list of wealthiest historical figures. That sounds like a deep dive. (laughs) (laughs) The top person on it is Musa I of Mali, Mm. who is considered to be one of the richest people ever because Mali was swimming in gold. Mali had so much gold. They had gold mines. They were able to not only mine it, but refine it and smelt it on their own. So it wasn't one of those situations where they didn't have the technology to properly extract the metal and it was just kind of sitting there looking pretty. Yes. And so basically, because the way that Mali's governmental structure worked at the time mm-hmm. in the Mali Empire, your Mansa controlled everything. And so what he wound up having was a country essentially made of gold. Right. Um, and so we don't know how rich Musa was. Right. Because we don't have the terminology for it. <laughs> it's like a Googleplex. We'll just make up a funny word. <laughs> Pretty much. It was He's like a golden he had, heir. <laughs> he, yes, he was a golden heir. It's sort of like the people right now who are speculating on like mining asteroids. And it's like if you can have an asteroid that is made of pure nickel. How much is that asteroid Hmm. worth? Well, it's worth more than the GDP of the world, right? And that's basically what Musa had. And so I stumbled on this random article, and then I read up on him, and there's so much cool stuff about this guy. But we are talking about disasters today. So we're going to give some background on the Mali Empire. We're going to give some background on Mansa Musa himself. And we are not going to walk away without talking about some of the really cool things about him. But we are definitely not going to go as deep as we can. So please, please look at our bibliography for extra neat uh, reading that you can do on Musa I of Mali. Because 
His story is amazing. He's worth it. Yep. So the first thing I read about him was that he is from a long line of really adventurous, ambitious people. And he actually comes to the crown after his uncle, the former Mansa, decides that he is just going to see what's on the other side of the ocean. Now, this is West Africa. And he would have departed from what's now Dakar, which is the very western tip of West Africa. He loads up 2,000 canoes. He takes 6,000 guys. They paddle off. Nobody hears from them again. And that's how Mansa Musa becomes the emperor, because he's next in the line after his uncle sets out and does not come back. There's actually, if we could sidebar for a minute, there are some scholars who believe that... (laughs) (laughs) he or some of his men could have made it to either uh, South America or Florida, interestingly. So he would have been uh, landing in Florida 100 years before Columbus. Does that blow your mind? It blew my mind. Yeah. So there's no, like, reliable historical artifact that's been found that that lets scholars say, oh, hey, this definitely happened. But if you look at the wind... We found a boat! (laughs) If you look at the wind and the current... It does go right from Dakar across the Atlantic Ocean. And so the big the big issue there is surviving that. Right. So if they had stayed afloat and not starved to death, they would have landed somewhere eventually. Yeah. Uh, so this is the kind of family that Mansa Musa is descended from. Like people who see the ocean and are just like, you know what? <laughs> What's on the other side of that thing? People with vision is what I mean to say. So for Mansa Musa... He uh, comes to power when he's in his early 20s. He decides that what he wants to do is make his empire bigger. Not unusual. So he goes around and he conquers the cities that are around the city where he lives, which is Niani. He realizes that if he can consolidate these kind of little city-states, he doesn't have to do much. Like, they need some kind of centralized government because they're overrun with bandits. See, this is another failing, at least in the American uh, educational <laughs> system here. We we learn we tend to learn a lot of European history. We tend not to learn a lot of African That's history. It's pretty dramatic. It, there's so much cool stuff. Um, <laughs> but a lot of times it's sort of, you know, the belief was that in Africa, before the colonists showed up, it was a loose collection of tribes, and they ran around with pointy sticks. Right, and they had all these natural resources they just did not know what to do with. <laughs> yes. That is not so the case. So it's a good thing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Mansabusa um, saw what was around him, and he knew what to do with it. Exactly. And and one of the most important things that was around him was the mine of Wangara. Yes. Because Wangara, okay, I mean... Again, we don't have the terminology for this, but I want you to imagine. <laughs> the other thing that set Mali apart was the fact that it's a very it's very lush. Like there's a lot you can grow there. And as we know from agricultural studies, once you can grow stuff, you can settle down. You you're not constantly running around just trying to survive. Yeah, it's great for stabilization. Exactly. Yeah, you get to send your kids to school, you get to like have neighbors. <laughs> and you're not at war all the time. Yeah, that can get old. But you're usually at war with people who are trying to take your really fertile land away from you. Right. And so in the middle of all this fertile land is this place called Wangara. And Wangara has a gold mine. 
And I say goldmine, and what I really mean is Wangara is this one gigantic lump of gold. <laughs> it is... Oh, God, how big is Wangara? Did you run across this in your research? So what I came across was that nobody really knows how big it is yeah. because the location was top secret and the miners who yes. worked there would, like, take the gold out yes. <laughs> to trade it. They weren't inviting people in. <laughs> hey, look at my huge thing of gold. Oh, no, how could this possibly have gone wrong? <laughs> so the problem with uh, Wangara was that these bandits would come and steal from the gold miners. There are these skirmishes. There are these fights. Mansa yeah. rides in with his army and he gets rid of the bandits. Uh, yeah. So the gold miners are really grateful. This is where you see like his diplomacy and almost like a likability. He says, listen, speak your language, worship whatever you want to worship. I love you guys. I'm going to keep the bandits away. Let's do business. So that's what ends up happening. And he does it again in the north at Tegzara, which is a salt mine. And I don't know if you knew this, but salt and gold <laughs> are roughly equivalent in value at this time. Yeah. Oh, Amazing. Yeah. The historical example most people immediately go to is the fact that Roman legionnaires were paid in salt, not in money. Yep. But the more fun one is that... You know, the Akan gold fields in Wangara are one half of why Musa was so rich. The other half were these salt mines. Right. Amazing. Amazing. Salt. Yeah. So the salt that they're mining in this little town in the Sahara is like marble. Yeah. It comes out of the ground in these blocks. It's the best salt that anyone's ever seen. It's incredibly, incredibly valuable. So when he does his pilgrimage... His camels are carrying gold. His donkeys are carrying salt. And that's how people know he's rich. He's got both. If, if Musa had existed in, like, Italy and had had access to the same resources, you know, he probably would have conquered most of Europe as well. You know, this is one of those things where if you have the gold and you have the salt, you, you are one of the richest people out there. Right. So the Mali Empire becomes a trading empire. So they don't have money. They're the richest people in the history of rich people, but they don't use money. They have a barter system. Now they have a functional economy. They're paying taxes, they're paying wages, but they don't use money. They use salt and gold as kind of the same way that we would use currency. Right. So it's at one end of a trade route that goes across the top of North Africa. And it's important also to, to point out that at this time, in this time period, mm -hmm. there's this hugely successful trade market going on around the Indian Ocean. Yes. So that the East African countries are also getting super rich right now. And they're getting rich off things like spices, uh, silk, carpets. But in Mali, what they're exporting from Mali are things like cotton cloth. They had the technology to weave and dye cotton. Uh, gold and salt, of course. Shoes, leather, cola nuts. Did you know that the original Coca-Cola was flavored with cola nuts from West Africa? <laughs> <laughs> I did know that. Yes, I did know that. It was cola nuts from, from North Africa and cocaine. and cocaine from South America. <laughs> it's a global drink. <laughs> People were tougher back then. Yes, and higher. <laughs> <laughs> you could also trade for livestock, beads, ivory, iron. Uh, fish and game was another uh, big barter item. And then what was coming into Mali was mostly tools from Europe and the Mediterranean. 
carpets from Iran, silk from India and China. Sorry, silk from China, spices from India. So these guys are really into trading. It's what they're very, very good at. Yep. So they have this really full, complex economy, and it's kind of on par with what you see in Europe at this time. Yep. Uh, well, in the good parts of Europe. In the tougher parts of Europe, they're still mining <laughs> dung. Uh, so this is kind of what's going on in Mali as Mansa Musa makes his pilgrimage. We should talk for a second about what a Hajj actually is. Yes. So it's one of the five pillars of Islam. If you are a devout Muslim, and Mansa Musa was a very devout Muslim, you make this pilgrimage to Mecca once in your life. The idea is that you're all like brothers and sisters worshiping together, which is a really nice idea. But Mansa Musa sees it as an opportunity for Mali to kind of join the world. It's a, it's a, little, uh, it's a little PR tour for Mali. Exactly. So they've been trading. Everyone knows they got good stuff. What he wants is kind of cultural cachet. He wants respect. And, uh, and in order to do this, <laughs> he decides to basically load up, like, all the gold he could put on 80 to 100 camels, depending on the source, yep. and take it with him. And spend it. Like, he's, he's showing up and he's trying to make a statement, because at this point, his ideas for expansion of the Mali Empire aren't necessarily geographical expansions they're cultural expansions exactly he wants people to come visit mali because it's going to be the jewel and centerpiece of islamic africa exactly and holy cow does he almost succeed <laughs> he's not just writing in to spend money for the sake of spending money his point with all this spending is <laughs> Not to destabilize Cairo, although there are different schools of thought on that. <laughs> but he just came through and flooded the market to the point where their market was no longer functional. Which, you know, is a boss move. I respect that. <laughs> yeah, it's... I hope to someday be in a position where I can spend some money and cause problems. <laughs> I, the, the, thing about the, the thing about his spending, too, was not just that he was spending a ton of money. He was also giving gold away. That's what you're supposed to do on the Hajj. You're supposed to, when you meet beggars who are looking for alms. And exactly, that's one of the principles of the Hajj. Which is why if you go into that part of Saudi Arabia, it, it's almost like its own economy. People asking for alms. He brings 60,000 people with him. Mm -hmm. Each one of them is carrying about four pounds of gold. And they are dressed to impress. I don't think we can overstate this. Uh, can we do a little sidebar for Mansa Musa's personal style? Can we, can we talk about the pants? Can we talk about the pants now? We're going to talk about the pants now, because the pants are amazing. Okay, so Mansa Musa started up this tradition having to do with trousers. When his generals or people in his armies would go out and they would perform some amazing task, they would do something super heroic, he would not reward them, you know, with medals or honorifics. He would give them pants. And what kind of pants? <laughs> he would give them wide trousers wide trousers i love this so much i can't even tell you and and so the bigger your exploit the more heroic your deed the larger your pants were going to be <laughs> now the widest pair of pants belonged to yeah Musa. you don't want to out wide trouser the king this guy's so cool <laughs> he's amazing 
I mean, if, if you've got to be remembered for your fashion sense, make it for something really, really impressive. And wide trousers are right up there. I mean, why would you why would you have a crown festooned with jewels when you can have a pair of pants that you could fit a horse inside? I mean, right? Like you could have both if you are Matsubosa. Yeah, his crown, by the way, apparently. <laughs> so the one of the few pictures we have of Musa comes from the Catalan Atlas. In that picture, he's holding a piece of gold that's bigger it's than a his beach hand, ball. And his <laughs> he's cr- holding a gold it's, beach ball. It's, it's it's like a grapefruit. Let's not get out of control here. <laughs> All right. And his crown is solid gold. Right. And it's not like that was, you know, the norm for the day. Anyway. Pants. pants. Do you have anything else we want to say about pants? Moment of silence, maybe, for the fact that nobody wears wide pants anymore. Nobody has to earn their wide pants. That's the problem here. All right. So, Mansumusa and his incredibly wide pants <laughs> make it to <laughs> make it to Mecca. He does the full worship service. He at first thinks about staying in Mecca because he gets to know a lot of the scholars and the other pilgrims who are there. And he really enjoys them. You know, I don't think this comes across enough. He's a people person. He is. He's very charming. He's extremely charming. And he's very good at listening to people. And and he's not only is he good at listening to people, but the, the historical accounts seem to indicate that he actually cared about what other people had to say which is bizarre for you know any ruler of this time period i think Um, that's what makes him such a good diplomat like he's you see it in with the gold miners he's looking at not only what can i get out of these people but what is going to make them happy like what what are they going to be able to live with well before he even gets to mecca we got to talk about what happened in cairo right so (laughs) What winds up happening is Musa and his caravan, again, of, you know, 60,000 people and a ton of camels and mules carrying salt and gold mm-hmm. all come to Cairo and they just start spending and giving away the gold. Now, Cairo at the time was the center of the gold market for the Mediterranean trade. So what winds up happening is all of a sudden gold loses most of its value Almost overnight, the price of gold basically dropped through the floor. And can I can I tell the the hot dog analogy? Go for it. I'm gonna tell the hot dog analogy. Okay. <laughs> so imagine you go and uh, you've got you know four hundred billion dollars, mm-hmm. and you decide that you're going to spread that money out. So you go and you buy a hot dog. Right. You go to Cairo and you buy a hot dog. Now. This hot dog is delicious, and you decide that you're going to give some some uh, some extra money to the hot dog guy, so you give him $10,000 for that hot nice. dog. Nice. And then you instruct everybody to buy their hot dogs for $10,000, because that's what you want to do. That's how you're going to spread out your money. Now, the problem is not so much... It's not so much that you paid $10,000 for the hot dog, and now hot dogs are worth $10,000... No, what cripples the economy is that you just said $10,000 is only worth one hot dog. Oh, right, because you have 30,000 friends with you, and they all want a $10,000 hot dog. Matsubusa, when the market collapses, he rides out. He takes his 30,000 people, 60,000 people, and uh, heads over to Saudi Arabia, leaving Cairo going, no, no, take your gold back. (laughs) 
Which he which he tried to do, actually. So on his way back, he rode through Cairo, and he was like, oh my, why is everyone so sad? Why has the economy collapsed? <laughs> what, uh, what happened here, guys? <laughs> Again, there are varying... <laughs> Varying takes on this. Some historians are like, he was genuinely surprised. And other historians were like, he saw an opportunity. <laughs> yeah, I I think, I mean, the but the interesting thing is, is that he doesn't just, you know, peace out and leave them to their, you know, to their now foundering economy. Right. He actually borrows all the gold he could from the moneylenders in Cairo at high interest. Right, and he actually does pay them back. Yes, which is which is insane because basically he made he made gold lose nearly all its value, and then in his on his way to Mecca, mm-hmm. and then on his way back, he tried to buy up a you know he tried to buy back so much that it would regain value, and and it's insane. Like this is. This is a, a person who single-handedly basically controlled the price of gold. Right. For a little while, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like, that's nuts. It's completely crazy. He, you, you, can, you hear about people, like, cornering the market on things. The dude cornered the market on gold. Insane. How do you do that? You get a gold asteroid. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. You have all the gold to start with, and then it's fine. Congrats. So, uh... You know, it did have an effect on Cairo for, I think they were saying, 12 to 20 years. No one's really sure how much of that can be attributed to Mansabuza's gold flush, but a lot of it is. And, you know, we see how much damage that can really do to an economy. I mean, we're kind of, we're not treating it super seriously because it's an insane story. But the equivalent would be like uh, San Francisco during the gold rush, where there's all this gold. Sure. But an egg costs thirty dollars. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. You don't have enough to eat, yeah. which is not good. Yeah, no, you generally not. And and the other thing is that Cairo was such a centralized gold market at mm-hmm. that time. It was it was the you know it was the place that people went you know all over the Mediterranean mm-hmm. for the gold market. And so this had a ripple effect that went out over a huge area exactly there there are some scholars who look back on it and say that basically he went in there with the goal to kind of put the empire of mali on the map right he wanted everybody to know here's mali mali's awesome we've got a ton of money and and you guys should come check out beautiful downtown mali (laughs) but he did so so enthusiastically yeah he's not a real subtle guy no. Not in this no. instance. Not in this instance. He gets a little no. carried away, which I think we can all relate to. <laughs> I mean, he's on a pilgrimage, he's enjoying himself, and then he turns around and goes, Oh wait, why is everybody broke all of a sudden? So uh on the way back through Cairo, he does kind of do what he he does what he can to kind of help out a little bit. Uh he was I don't think he was intending to collapse the entire economy. What he wanted no. to do was make an impression, which yeah. he did. Which he uh, did. <laughs> <laughs> and he makes such an impression that <clears throat> when that atlas is being illustrated, the Catalan atlas, yep. the cartographer puts a picture of Mansamusa right in the middle of West Africa. Yeah. 
And it's an impressive picture. It is a man with a solid gold crown holding a golden... Did we decide if it was a beach ball or grapefruit? I'm saying grapefruit. Holding a golden grapefruit. Dressed in silken robes. You know, like, he's... He is... He is looking he is looking stylish and super well. He's on a throne. He's got tons of gold. It does dress up that map really nicely. <laughs> it really does. It's quite striking. Um and and not only that, but this is the impression he made, okay? So Musa dies in 1337. Mm. The Catalan Atlas was made in 1375. So like 50 years after he's gone, well, 40 years after he's gone, they put the picture on there. Yep. And that's impressive. It's, it's, they basically replace Northwest Africa with his picture. They're like, yeah, this is Molly. This guy right here must be all, <laughs> he is Molly. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. And this actually has a really unintended effect on Europe because they see this and they say, yep. hey... I love gold. How about I go there and get some? And this yeah. is what begins the push for colonization. Uh, France gets in there first. This is hundreds of years later, but yeah, the genesis of this idea that West Africa is full of gold comes yep. from that illustration. There's an old legend um, that's usually placed in South America about a city of gold. Mm. And one of the, just because of the, you know, the way that stories move through the world, one of the theories about that so-called city of gold is that it's not actually in South America. It's meant to refer to either Timbuktu or Gao in the Empire of Mali. Now, that is a great segue because I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about Timbuktu as we wrap up our six hours of Mansa Musa. <laughs> um, yes, we need to talk about Timbuktu. So his vision coming back from the Hajj with his new friends, some of whom he took with him, uh, was to totally transform Timbuktu. Now, he's been living in Niani. It's in the southern part of the empire. Yep. He wants to be more centralized. He wants to be closer to the trade routes. So he decides that he is going to establish uh, Timbuktu as like a cultural center. Yes. What he needs is respect, which he's already gotten. Yes. (laughs) And architecture. So one of the guys that he takes back with him is an architect from North Africa. And he helps Mansa Musa design these very distinctive buildings that are, you've seen them. Yes. They're mud buildings, mud plastered, with kind of sticks coming out of the side. They're very distinctive, tiny little windows. So those are clay structures that retain heat overnight and repel heat during the day. So the architecture is functional. It lets people like circulate comfortably. It's great for books because it's dry and it's, you know, temperature controlled. So he builds a few of these. He builds the University of San Corre, uh, which is a madrasa originally. And then it kind of branches out until it is this amazing center of Islamic scholarship. So scholars from all over the world come there to teach, to study. And they're not just studying the Quran. They're studying things like medicine, uh, mathematics. Astronomy. Uh, they're studying poetry. Just just a massive amount of brain power is pouring into Timbuktu. And it really becomes the kind of cultural center that Mansa Musa envisions when he sets out on his Hajj. 
So what we know about the Sankore University is that we don't know if it had 25,000 students in it, but it was capable of housing that many people. Right. Which in, you know, the 1300s, that's insane. The library at Sankore had, um, and some sources put it at tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of manuscripts. Some of it put it at around a million manuscripts. It's at least 700,000 manuscripts. Right. Massive. You know, it's one of those things where if the, the library of Alexandria was not in Egypt, this would have been the largest library on the African continent. Oh, hands down. Yeah. As it was, it's still one of the largest libraries ever to exist in the world. Mm-hmm. And you're right, it wasn't just, you know, uh, religious texts. They had all kinds of amazing scrolls and manuscripts. And the the architecture itself was so neat. It really is. It's really, really cool. One of the things that he did before Sankare was in Niani, he built this this thing called the Hall of Audience. Did you run into yes. this at all? Oh, I my totally God. I did it's, it's so, so cool. neat. Um, it's basically a building made outside of the royal palace um, where he could meet with people. But as any smart king or emperor does, he want, when he's meeting with somebody, he wants to put them on the back foot immediately. Right. You know, sort of subtle intimidation. And this thing is a masterclass in subtle intimidation. It's two stories with a dome on top. And then the upper story is plated in silver. And the lower story is plated in gold. So sparkly. <laughs> you walk in there and he's like, yeah, this is my gold house that's outside of my other gold house that's inside of my kingdom of gold. What's up? So what did you want to talk about? <laughs> it's amazing. And once Sankara University was built, there were people coming from all over. There, there are some records of traders from Venice mm-hmm. and Genoa yep. coming to Timbuktu. The mathematics obviously spread in a huge yes. way. And it's just, it's it's one of those things where you can see in, in a wealthy country that invests in their culture, mm-hmm. them valuing the knowledge that's there. That's impressive. Right. And his whole reign is very security minded. You yeah. know, he doesn't take things over and then let them do whatever like he takes over the trade routes he takes over the cities he administers them he takes care of them and that's why he was so popular he had these ambitious projects he had all this follow-through first of all he actually achieved and accomplished things but then he took care of what he built he believed in infrastructure infrastructure god it's such a nice thing yeah, it, you conquer the country and then you pave the roads. I love it when people go all the way through that. They have the big idea, they make it happen, and then they take care of it. Amazing. So for a long time, nobody outside of West Africa, or very few people outside of West Africa, after the French get in there and colonize, because what is it we always say? Colonization ruins everything across the board. The French get in there, there's just the university never never recovers. gets back to where it was yeah and and it's because when they were colonized it didn't fit the narrative right yeah we can't be in here taking all your stuff if you guys are actual like human beings yeah yeah with an infrastructure <laughs> with an infrastructure exactly it, it's it turns into this weird thing of like well you see we were we are civilizing the savages right 
Uh, except that they know more about math than we do, so we're going to burn all their math books. Right. And, it, yes, that is a pattern that repeats itself over and over. It does kind of break my heart. Anyway. Uh, so for a long time, nobody outside of this community, this particular community, understood what was in Timbuktu and why it was so valuable. Now that starts to change, you know, in the last half of the... 20th century, <laughs> shamefully. <laughs> oh, God. So 600 years later... People are like, oh, oh. hey! <laughs> oh, wait a minute. A culture actually existed before we got there? Whoops! Isn't this interesting? Uh, so there's kind of this, this influx of interest in uh, the library at Timbuktu and these manuscripts. Now, these are manuscripts that are handwritten. They're not printed for the most part, so they're irreplaceable. Now... How many of them are actually were actually still in existence once Timbuktu was colonized? Because I couldn't find any information on so that. So by this time, the scholars are so much of the community that the community feels responsible for the manuscripts. So a lot of the manuscripts actually end up in households, and they get passed down through family to family, just kind of like, we can't, we can't leave this where people are going to get it, so just hang on to it, and uh, all of this will be fine someday. So you're talking about hundreds of thousands of manuscripts kind of floating around Timbuktu. In the last half of the 20th century, they start to be collected again and kind of institutionalized in a more organized way. So there are libraries that are really, you know, interested in restoring and preserving and taking care of these things. So <laughs> some of the families also hang on to their manuscripts. Sure. I mean, if it's been passed down at this point for like 400 years already, you kind of feel like you have ownership yeah plus if you're living in this kind of centuries of upheaval you're kind of like you know what i'm just gonna take care of this <laughs> i'm just gonna I, I, I got this Excitingly, they started to resurface a few years ago and librarians and scholars have actually been smuggling them out of the city to the north of the country where things are a little more politically stable and there's all kinds of cool like NGOs and grant programs that are actually working towards preserving and digitizing them. So it's possible that in a few years, the world is going to know a lot more about the university and what was being taught. And I mean, God knows what's in these, what's in these manuscripts. They're mostly in Arabic, but they're also in like half a dozen other West African languages. And that's what Mansa Musa really wanted. When he rolled into Cairo and started spending all this money, this was what he wanted. He wanted Timbuktu to become a major cultural center. And yeah. at this time, we're really starting to understand the scope of what he intended. See, he was playing the really long game. The extremely <laughs> long game, which you got to respect. You got to respect it. There's, there's nothing about this guy's reign that isn't interesting. And the fact that you had a ruler of an incredibly wealthy country mm -hmm. who not only observed, like, you know, the, the religious customs of his faith and of his time, but also valued culture. Right. You know, in this time period, most wealthier countries were invested in, you know, look, we're just going to build the biggest army we can. Yeah, book, books are great, but we want we want dudes with sharp objects who can hurt other dudes with other sharp objects. And he was not anti-military. <laughs> no, he was not. No, and Musa was like, yes, I already have a whole bunch of guys with sharp objects. Let's get some books up in this place. Yeah. And and can we can we take a a two a two second detour 
to talk about uh, when he when he took absolutely. Gal. That's a fun story. <laughs> Go for it. So on his way back from his Hajj, so he he goes to Mecca. He says his prayers. He destabilizes Cairo. He comes back. That is a full trip. <laughs> so the the city state of Gao, it was within the borders of the Mali Empire, but it was always sort of this like rebellious kind of place. They they weren't happy being part of the Mali Empire. And they had their own king, and um, a lot of trade passed through the city-state of Gao. So Musa makes a detour, and his army retakes Gao on his way back. So he goes to the city, and he takes the two sons of the Gao king. Now, this is a very common practice. It's it's where we get the term hostage yep. from, okay? <laughs> You, you come in and in order to make sure that the parents behave, you take their kids. Now, normally when you take their kids, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to leave them, you know, you're supposed to, you know, leave them alive and feed them enough so they don't die and maybe teach them which end of a sword to hold. <laughs> well, we don't want to get too weapony. Well, that, hey, that's a lot of Europe. But anyway, <laughs> so, but these two sons, they were named Ali Colon and Suleiman Nar, all right? And he brings them back to Niani, and he sits them down and and basically gives them the modern equivalent of a college education. Aww. He educates them, and and apparently, when he died, they went to his funeral and basically refer to him as a second father. Oh no, I think I think uh, the historical record kind of bears that out. And actually, one of those two. Uh one of those two sons does become the king of the next empire that ends up Ali Khalini. Yes. yes. Yeah. He knows what he's doing. Cause he got educated. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. I don't have any other sidebars. I think we sidebarred ourselves. Out. Okay. All right. Let's just jump into our, uh, our, our advice for time. travelers. Yeah. So first of all, this is another great destination for time travelers, medieval Cairo. Absolutely. First of all, the weather's really nice. I would want to go right? there. The weather is amazing. amazing. You can predict when the rainstorms are going to come, which is huge. Yep. The food in Egypt is supposed to be really, really yeah. good. Yeah, um, it's very, pardon the pun, but very rich food. <laughs> you're 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 doing a lot of cooking with animal fats, but it's also a ton of spices. Because remember, they're at the yes. end of the spice road. So it's good food, uh, good climate. There's certainly lots to see and do. Yes, and the architecture is amazing. You're going to be able yep. to watch new buildings go up courtesy yes. of prisoners of war who are enslaved from the Crusades. So, hey, Europeans, how you doing? So, it's obviously a great place to shop, which is where you're going to really run into trouble. Yeah, so first of all, obviously, don't bring No, gold. you're not going to want to bring any kind of gold. What you're going to want to bring is snacks. And what we're going to recommend are a wide selection of granola bars. Yes. Uh, some juices. Yep. Yep. Uh, pr preferably the, you know, the kind of juices that you can carry around in those neat little boxes. That'll really impress people. So, too. yeah, you're going to want to be able to take care of all of your personal needs. Bring your own soap. Uh, make sure your shoes are in good repair. You're just, you're not going to be able to do a lot of buying and selling. However, there are some things you can bring with you to do some great bartering. Yes. What could you bring? Uh, anything that's, well, I would, I would recommend anything that is made out of carved stone. 
because carved stone is an art style that never really goes out of fashion. It's always classic, yeah. Like like wide trousers. Yes, and that was the other thing I was going to say. I was going to say bring as large a pair of pants as you can. People love it. Just make sure they're not too wide. You don't want to be wider than 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 the Monsa's pants, yeah. I would say not even wider than the head general's pants. I mean, you you do not want to offend here. You want to be wide, but not too wide. It's a very fine line. Sure, that might call into question. Excellent idea. Excellent. Yeah, and unfortunately, the historical record isn't quite clear on exactly how wide they were. So maybe bring several pairs just to be on the safe so, side. So uh, enjoy your enjoy your trip to uh, medieval Cairo. Drop us a postcard. Now, however, you are going to want to get out there rather quickly. Because uh, you've only got about 20 years before the Black Death is going to show up. Oh, yeah, that's not a fun time. No. Don't linger. No. <laughs> Make sure your flight is on time. Yeah. Do not lose your papers. It's going to be a fun trip, though. Have a great time. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us for this episode of Relative Disaster. We've hoped you've enjoyed the story and the discussion. And please join us next time for another strange and dangerous event from history and our finest advice for surviving. Yay. My sister has selected our next disaster... What's it going to be, Ella? It is going to be the 1980 collapse of the Centralia Mine Fire. Okay, this is one of the most interesting disasters ever, and the fact that it's still going on today means you need to tune in next time, and we're going to have a great discussion. Oh yeah, we have a lot to talk about with uh, Centralia. So we really hope you enjoyed our little trip to West Africa. Uh, we just want to remind you that although Greg and I are enthusiastic researchers... We do occasionally get things wrong. And if we get something wrong and it really bothers you, uh, drop us an email. If you love the show, drop us an email. We have a new email address. It is relative.disaster at gmail.com. We'd love to hear what you think. And we hope you keep listening.